Welcome to the Freedom Challenge Online with host and director of the Freedom Challenge, Tracy Doherty. Our mission is to do good by helping enslaved women and children, to do more than you ever thought physically possible, and to do it together by connecting women with a heart for a hurting world. Hey, Freedom Sisters and listeners, we are happy to have you join us today as we deepen this conversation about racism through the lens of biblical justice. And if you remember on a previous episode, I described my intentional process in the wake of this racial injustice of the Black community, and I identified some of the spiritual framework I'm using to go through this personal journey. And this includes the foundation of love, the need to actually lament, the importance of listening, and the process of unlearning so hard, and the value of relearning, and then what it looks like to actually lean in. So as I shared with you before, my hope is that this is a framework that activates your inner process, your journey to deepen your love for all people and broaden your understanding of biblical justice in our world today. Today, I am joined by a good friend, Sonia Finley, and we're going to deepen our conversation on anti-racism and with her valuable perspective on the learning and the unlearning process. So here's something. This great woman, we have known each other for eight or nine years, but she is a Freedom Challenge sister, and we have been a part of the same church family for years. We've done a lot of ministry projects together. She is one of the best moms I know. She has four sons, and I'm sure she's going to talk a little bit about them as we have our conversation today. And from her, I've learned a lot about parenting. She is also a celebrated professional and a leader in her workplace. She is a dynamic communicator, friends. She uses the mediums of art, theater, spoken word, poetry, crafting to create messages and meaning from life. And more than all of that, she is a champion of people and she is a fun and faithful friend. And just so you know, Sonia and I had planned on doing this podcast to talk a little bit about the Freedom Challenge and her experience, but as life started to unfold and the current events that have happened, we had a conversation in which I invited her into whether or not she just wanted to have a frank sharing of her feelings and her experience in this area. So I'm so thankful for her yes. I'm excited to learn from her. Before we dive into this conversation, Sonia, I would love for you to share whatever you would like to tell us about yourself. So Tracy, I I am very happy to be here. I appreciate you having me on the call and, and engaging me in these conversations. I value our friendship. So this makes me feel pretty good that you would be comfortable enough to have this conversation, especially in front of your listeners. I appreciate that. So a little bit about myself, which was kind of hard because you, you know, you basically said all of this magnificent stuff. So basically, (laughs) what am I going to say about myself that you haven't already said? But as I sit and listen to what you were saying, I realize there's three things that I would bring out that I think would describe me if I were to, if somebody were to just say, hey, three sentences, tell us who you are. So the first one would be as a mother of four black sons, I have worked hard to instill in them a certain pride in themselves, despite 
how they are viewed by society. As an artist, my work intentionally celebrates the beauty of the Black female. And as a believer, I recognize my life as a testimony that will encourage others who struggle as I do. Mm, that's, that's a good summation about yourself. I would like the listeners to know that some of Sonia's art is so phenomenal. When you see these Black females, you, you see power and uniqueness and the way that you portray those images is quite spectacular. And we're going to be highlighting some of those images in months to come. So in 2018, I invited you to Freedom Challenge in Bryceion. And I invited you to communicate this powerful message that God had put on your heart, but also to participate. And the participation piece, we're going to have a conversation about that in months to come because I really... I believe that there was some transformation in you from that experience. But what I'd like to highlight on today is this project that you shared with the women. It was very experiential and it was on the identity of women and you called it beauty for ashes. So can you tell us a little bit about the meaning and um, the message in that ministry project? So I believe about two years prior to you inviting me to do the Bryce Zion Project, my mother asked me to speak at her women's conference. And the, the theme that she gave me was Beauty for Ashes. Now, being that type of person who is an extremely creative minded type of thing, it, it just would not do for me to basically go up there and, you know, read a bunch of stuff and speak to people and bore you to death. So I had to come up with a creative way to present the message. But the message itself wasn't so much about, oh, God's going to take my beauty trash. It's what I realized it was about identity. At that time, I was actually struggling pretty hard with my own identity. I had difficulties in figuring out who I was, where I was going, what was good about me, the norm, women, we struggle. And so having to walk through and research and prepare this message was was healing for me in the process. So I came up with this image and this image was of a woman and it was a painting. I did the painting and it was a woman and she was at her very best. Because if you think about it, all of us as women, we have that place in our lives where we feel like we are perfect. Whether it was five years old and you got your first cute pair of patent leather shoes with your little bobby socks or whether it was 15 when you realize, you know, you're going through puberty and oh my gosh, I look so cute. And the little boy tells you that you're pretty or whether or not it's you're 21, you got your first job, you're professional, you're doing your thing, you're at your perfect weight, your haircut is fine. We all have that touchstone where we feel like we are at our best, where we are perfect. And so that is the image that I painted of that perfect, beautiful woman in that space. But when we talk about identity and we talk about the identity crisis of women or females, we, there's things that happen that cause us to begin to lose who we are. And so when I did the conference and I began to talk, I talked about my own struggles. I had to do it from my point of view. I talked about my struggles and with just, you know, knowing who I am, the things that I dealt with. But as I talked, I began to put that stuff on the image. I wrote it in black Sharpie. But not only did I write mine up there, I wrote everybody in the audience because I asked them to share what are those things that are causing them issues. And there was anything from divorce and, and rape and abortion and 
bitterness and drug abuse and addiction and, and abuse and all these things that we as women take on of ourselves. And so I wrote in black Sharpie in big letters on the head and the heart, because this is where this stuff happens to us. It gets in our heads and it colors our thinking and then it gets in our hearts and it causes us to be emotionally stifled. So where I wrote all of this black stuff was on the headpiece and on the neck for the symbolization of where these things happen. And so as I finished writing, when it was done, all you could see was all this black stuff. And, and it's a very powerful image, if you can think about it, having this beautiful painting. And then the artist goes and just defaces it with all of this stuff. And it's, it's one of those things where you just like visually, like it makes you uncomfortable because why are you destroying that? But that is literally what happens to us as women. So moving on, I found a scripture that really just talks about how God just takes all of that and soothes us and he dresses us in robes and gives us silk and puts earrings on us and jewelry. And so as that scripture was read, I simply began to take gold paint and I painted it on the head wrap and I painted it on the neck. And so by the time the scripture was done and it said, literally said, God takes you to ashes and he turns it into beauty. And so when it was done, what you had left from all of the black stuff that was on the head and the, the neck, you had a beautiful crown and a wonderful necklace. The women were able to get this sense of that no matter what I have. God can use that and make it beautiful. So when you invited me to do it at Bright Zion, I didn't just do the message myself. I actually gave the, the, the attendees the opportunity to walk through that process themselves. They were able to paint their own images. They were able to write their own issues on it. And then they were able to take that gold paint and transform that headpiece, all of that garbage that's in their head into a beautiful crown. They were able to take all of that stuff in their heart and, and it, turn it into a beautiful necklace. And so for them and me, it was, I think it was an amazing experience for me to, to see that amount of women being blessed by a message that was so very personal to me. That was such a life-changing project. I mean, I'm forever thankful for the way that you shared that. And if you all can imagine who listening Everyone got to participate in their personal art piece as this message was shared. And I loved how that you invited the ladies even into using different colors and expressions that represented women of color. And by the end of the time, there was just all kinds of lovely going on in that room. It was truly remarkable. Part of our conversations that we've been having as of late are you mentioning this, the core of racism is the diminishment of the identity and the values and the voice of the African-Americans. Can you speak a little bit more into that specifically? So as I mentioned before, God has really challenged me in the area of identity. And as I'm, I'm watching all of these things play out, how, you know, some people are recognizing for the first time that these atrocities are happening to black people. Black people have been sitting with this for years, hundreds of years. And so it's very easy to see that. And so I'd like to focus on how racism works to destroy the true identity of African-Americans, not to paint us as victims so much, not to, you know, to be like, oh, my gosh, life is so hard for us, but actually to bring awareness to the dangerous subtleties of learned implicit biases, because the need to challenge them 
is important if a person is truly going to change how black people are viewed, how they're going to change their perspective. You have to know the insidiousness of this thing. And it's not so much that the things that are done to us, per se, that is the big deal. Because, again, it's easy to see the violence. It's easy to get offended by the violence, the, the active things that are in your face. But it's a little harder to understand that the daily waking up every day and being told by everything in society from being how you can get a job or where you can live or what you can say and how you can say everything is told to you that you are somehow not enough, that you're somehow not good enough because of the very thing that you have no power to change. This is the way we were born. And yet that is the thing that is being used against us to prove to us that somehow we don't have value. And, and if you imagine living that kind of life where every day you're having to tell yourself, I am good. You're having to fight to say, hey, I'm worthy of life. You're having to raise your voice and say, hey, see me. I have a voice. I have power every day. And, and it is a challenge for black people, African-Americans, people of color, to simply find peace in who they are. These words are hard to hear as your friend, but as we've been talking about what it means to learn and unlearn, we need to hear these words and sit with them and challenge ourselves to do a lot more listening than talking and defending. And again, it sounds like the enemy is after the dignity and the significance of the black voice who's made in the image of God. He's always after the image. And so I think it would be important for us as we continue just learning, like I said, learning and unlearning. And I want to open up the conversation for you to teach us about what are these terms we hear systemic and systematic racism. Can you explain a little bit more of these terms, more about them, and why it's important for us to understand them? So this is very interesting because my 21-year-old son, one of my twins, I was using them kind of interchangeably and he kind of, well, actually I was using systematic and he came up and he said, no mom, it's systemic. And, and then as I, you know, talked to other people, I found out it's both. Mm. It is both systematic and it is both systemic. And so systematic racism refers to the bias, discriminatory, methodical systems that are fixed in place and used to keep African-Americans and other people of color operating at a distinct disadvantage in life. So when we talk about systematic racism, we're talking about those policies, those procedures, those things, you know, black people can't live here or are we going to do this and keep them out and, and all these things that are put in place from the time that we were slaves up until the time of Jim Crow, up until, you know, literally today, there are things, systems in place that are there simply to keep us operating at a disadvantage. Systemic racism refers to how the problem extends further 
than just police brutality and unequal justice. And this is where I think it starts to play into the idea of diminishing the identity of African-Americans. Systemic racism is an issue that affects the whole ball of wax, like daily, everything that is out there. Um, and so in the discussion of racism, like I said, the primary focus is on the violence that is enacted upon people of color. But, you know, it's and it's easy. It's very easy to sit in that space. It's very easy for our white counterparts to be like, oh, my gosh, black lives matter because they're being beat down. They're being killed by the police. And it's easy to verbalize that. It's easy to, to find that space of outrage. And so while there's a great call for police reform and there's a great, you know, feeling of, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. It, it, it just really doesn't address the issue in its totality. It doesn't speak to, like I mentioned before, the daily struggle that black people deal with every day. Every single day of their life, we're literally indoctrinated into it when we're born. And so just to focus on police brutality and, and the inequality in the justice system, that's not enough. There's a distinct blind spot when it comes to the devastating effects of systemic and systematic racism in this country, this culture. It's easy to see the violence and stand against it. It's more difficult to spot the historical normalized, and I say that with emphasis, the normalized routine daily assault on the identity of African-Americans. This ideology that is there, that somehow Black people, people of color are less than, or, you know, not as smart, not as, as talented, not, not this, not that, all these different things, that we're, we're violent, we're we're, you know, we're, we want to be on welfare. We, we don't want to do right. We're lazy. All of these things is so weaved into our culture and it's so insidious. It's so subtle, especially right now, because, because people think we've, we've made it after Martin Luther King and, and all of that happened and, 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 you know, the civil rights movement, they think for some reason, they believe that we have arrived and that everything is okay. And, and because this stuff is so weaved into this culture, into this country, it is extremely difficult for me or anybody else as a black person to prove to our white counterparts that this is actually happening. But we feel it every day and it affects every single part of our lives. That's a lot of information, a lot of good heavy information to take in. And, I, and I'm so grateful for your honesty and your candor about how this truly affects your life. And I would really love for you to share just on a personal level what it's been like for you to be the mom of four amazing Black sons. So I have four sons, four very, well, three dark ones and one's a little medium brown. There's no denying that they are Black. They are beautiful. They're, they're very handsome. And, you know, obviously I love my son. And what I find very amazing is that God allowed me to raise my sons by myself. And so as a mother who is raising basically four uh, men or individuals that at any moment can be seen as a threat simply for standing at the bus stop wearing a hoodie. It is devastating. It is a beautiful thing to have the children. 
to have the sons, but it is a sobering thing when you realize their place in society. So even though I celebrate the fact that I have these beautiful black men that I, you know, I've, I've born and raised, it, it is, it is heartbreaking sometimes to look out and know that at any moment they could be taken from me because somebody was uncomfortable with who they were. And I'm reminded, and, and he didn't tell me this until years later, literally he was an adult and he didn't tell me his experience. But my second oldest son, you know, he decided to go to a school that, a high school that he couldn't walk to, but it was no problem because there's a bus stop right in front of our apartment complex. And if you know my second oldest son, he's like the gentle giant. He's never going to raise his voice at you. He's never going to do anything to hurt you. He, he maintains a certain level of, of self-discipline and, you know, he has a big heart. He's just a big teddy bear. So the idea that he would do anything to warrant being accosted by the police is outrageous to me because he doesn't even do anything to make me upset and I'm his mother. So he tells me the story of how he's sitting on the bus stop one morning and it, it's dark, it's early morning, it's cold. So he's sitting there and I imagine he had on his hoodie and the police roll up and they be begin to question him about a robbery, burglary that took place. And he's sitting there no more than 14, 15, 16 years old being questioned by the cops. Later on, he tells me, you know, he got a lovely job at Target and that was amazing. I'm very proud of my son because he's very responsible. So he's telling me that, Mom, I'm walking across the street with my uniform on, going to work, and he stopped again and questioned by the cops. Where are you going? What's your name? Why are you not in school? Now, understand it's the weekend, so he wouldn't have been in school anyway, but he's wearing his employee uniform. And if you've ever seen a Target uniform, it's bright red. You can't miss it. So he's wearing his employee uniform and yet he's being stopped and questioned for no other reason because he's a black man. Now, fast forward and he's a grown man and he's standing outside of his job again with his uniform on and his name tag. And he's waiting for his Uber to take him home because he just worked a long shift. A white woman walks by him, goes into the store, and tells the store people to call the cops because she thinks he's going to rob it. Now, the people in the store knew him, and so they kind of laughed it out, and they, they laughed about it, and they told him about it. But for him and I, that was a sobering thing, because if he had went down the street or waited in front of another store where they did not know him, what could have happened? What could have happened? And so as a mother raising these beautiful black men, I find myself having to tell them what all black mothers are telling their sons. Be careful. Don't drive too fast. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't wear a hoodie. Don't walk in a store with your hands in your pockets. Don't carry a backpack in the store. Keep your voice down. Keep your head down. Stay out of trouble. Watch what you say. Watch how you say it. And so in essence, while I'm telling my sons, you're beautiful, you're great, you're wonderful, you're strong, you're intelligent, you have the ability to do anything you want to, I'm also telling them, hey, people out there are not going to see that. People out there are not going to understand that. So be careful. Be careful of how you show who you are.
Oh, my friend, we gotta change. We gotta do better. Being on the front seat of your life, knowing your sons and knowing this son, who when you say he's a gentle, giant, precious, is, in my mind, that and more. And seeing how you have faithfully loved your son so well. I mean, if if I enjoy watching how fiercely your boys love you and take care of their mom and know the things about you that make you come alive and serve you. And I honor you for the way that you have done that. And sometimes alone without maybe the felt presence of community and people with you. And it breaks my heart. And it's got to change. We, we need to do better. Christ followers need to do better. And that leads me into a discussion that you and I had just a few weeks ago on the day after Juneteenth. We went to a community prayer gathering, which is very special just to be with you after all these lockdowns in our home. It was fun to be together and to talk about what's happening in the world. But You know, we talked about what it has been like for you as well to be in a predominantly white church family. And I would love to, again, invite you into sharing with us what that has been like for you in the both shaping you and also challenging you in that setting. So I I began uh, attending the church that you're speaking of probably about 10 years ago. But I, I, it was recommended to me by uh, my apartment manager. Uh, my church that I had been attending was disbanded for a period of time. And so I was without a church home. And, and she suggested, and interestingly enough, she was white. And it never, <laughs> I have to be honest, it never dawned on me. It never occurred to me when I went to the church that, oh, my gosh, I'm going to a predominantly white church. It was just, I need to go to church because that's, that's my, my stability. And so we went to the church and, and yes, it was a predominantly white church and it, you know, but the people, you know, rallied and, and loved and, and those kind of things. And, and the, the biblical principles were the same. The culture was definitely different. Let's be real. You know, I'm, I'm that, you know, I come from a very demonstrative and energetic uh, background when it comes to church services. So the culture was definitely different. But like I said, the biblical principles were the same. And so being in that, that body, I learned a lot. I, I, I was, you know, I went in with an open mind and open heart. And so when it comes to biblical principles and, and, and things of that nature, I learned a lot. I, you know, there were, there's a lot of information that was given a lot of classes, a lot of things like that. And so I kind of took it in as a sponge. Um, I didn't operate in the capacity that I had previously when I went to other churches, but I felt like that was the time where God wanted me to learn some things. And I was content, you know, as content as I could be, because, again, different cultures and things like that. So it it kind of caused some dissonance. But as far as being okay with being in that body, I was okay. Now, things shifted a little bit when we got our first black president. And I remember very distinctly uh, listening to, you know, the people around me saying some very, very disturbing things. And in one moment, I remember I told you this a couple of weeks ago, there came a moment when I was sitting there and after having listened to these and seen some things that people posted and and all of these different things, you know, 
And it dawned on me, I said, you know what, these are the people that when I was younger, we were warned as black people to stay away from. And that broke my heart because here was a group of people that said they loved me. Here was a group of people that, that, that said they loved my children. And now I'm hearing them say things that break my heart, that make me feel like somehow they don't see me. They don't understand me. That even while they have invited me into their lives, they have not taken the time to be a part of mine. It, it was almost as if, you know, they, they saw me, but then forgot that I was black. And I remember I had to, I had to get something off my chest and I literally wrote, please remember I am black. I identify with African Americans. It is not cool to say some of the things that you're saying and to, to walk amongst them and then be in a position because of, you know, being a believer because of, of my heart, you know, trying to give grace on a daily basis. And then to to listen to the rhetoric of oh my gosh we love everybody but not seeing the everybody reflected in that community i i remember you know black people coming and and being a part of it and i remember those same black people disappearing and i would sit there and wonder why well i didn't i didn't have to wonder let's be real i knew why they didn't stay it there was a distinct feeling that they were not, I won't say not welcome, but when you are sitting in a space and you don't see yourself reflected anywhere, except unless the mirror is on you, it becomes, it becomes a very difficult place to stay. It really does. And, uh, you and I had the conversation that there, there was, there was nothing being done to intentionally diversify the body. There was nothing being done to intentionally include other cultures, other other skin colors, you know, other ideas. Um, it was very much always the same. And so I'm still at the church and it's, you know, especially now it is still a difficult place to be. But again, as God deals with me in how to deal with this. It is still a place of learning, not just for myself, but it does give me the opportunity to have those conversations. Because when I went back, because again, we were all, you know, sheltered in place and quarantine and, and the churches have recently opened. When I went back and they saw my face, I began to have those difficult conversations. I remember one day getting asked by at least three people, what are some things that they could do to make some changes? And so while I get, you know, oh my gosh, this is really, really hard for me to sit here. You know, I appreciate you as a friend who allows me to kind of, you know, bounce these things off of you. I appreciate my other friends in my community that allow me to kind of like, oh my God, I'm driving me crazy. I also understand that if, my voice was not there at this time, this place, then they may not hear the message at all. Yeah. These are hard words to hear, my friend. And as I said before, when we talked, I felt the need to repent because for those of you who don't know, 
The church that Sonia speaks of is the church that my husband and I have led for years. And hearing how, for all the great things I I believe we have done in our leadership, I needed to hear the hard things and become aware of our lack of sensitivity or awareness of not facilitating conversations in all of my places of influence that would foster listening and understanding and healing and unity. And as I've said before, Sonia, I am sorry. And moving forward, I, as a leader in in the kingdom of God, want to do much better. And I believe it's a time that many of our hearts are, again, unlearning and learning a new path forward. How do we create the kingdom of God on earth that looks like how Jesus dreams of it, which is so diverse and so beautiful and filled with every tribe and tongue and language and is incredibly inclusive of our black brothers and sisters. So again, we need to hear the hard things, and I'm so thankful. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. It's a Bible verse, you know. Do you have anything else you want to say into this, speak into this, before we move on to our next question? Um, Actually, I do, because I think right now, again, um, as I mentioned before, a lot of people are, are triggered on both sides of the coin. So you have you know, you have African-Americans and people of color who are, are feeling, you know, the the weight of racism and, and the impact that it has on our daily lives. And, and then we have our white counterparts and they're just now, some of them are just now realizing the, 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 the impact of this thing. And so I think what's happening, you know, I hear from different people is I don't, I don't know how to act now. I don't know what to say. I, I don't want to be offensive and, and things like that. But I think there, you know, if I could just, you know, kind of give a little advice, it, it might be personal, but I think it applies to any person of color that you might walk into. But when interacting with people who are feeling the weight of racism, especially right now with, with the George Floyd and all these different instances where there's been this inordinate amount of violence against black people for no other reason than, oh, my gosh, I can um, it is important, it is extremely important to practice listening for an understanding. And that's different than listening to refute or judge or even trying to gather the opportunity to voice your opinion or make the issue about you. I have, you know, a variety of people that follow me that I'm friends with on Facebook and, and, and their responses are equally different. But one of the key things that I find is that the thing that makes black people really, really angry right now that triggers us big time is the fact that when we say, hey, you know what, we're feeling a little like this. We're feeling like society is breaking us down and treating us like garbage. This is how we're feeling. And then for somebody to come and tell us, no, that's not right. You should be happy you live here. You should feel blessed that you live in this country. You need to sit down. Don't say that. What are you saying? And and what makes it feel like is it's just as if anybody came to you and said, hey, you know what? I'm hurting. I'm, I'm really feeling bad. And you turn around and say, you know what? You need to get over it. Everybody's hurting. And that that's that's the thing, because in all of this, we want to be heard and we want to be acknowledged. 
So listening for an understanding, taking the time to just listen and acknowledge someone else's experience that is different from yours is a great way. It's just, it's the absolute first starting point to unlearn implicit biases and get a different perspective. And getting that different perspective is absolutely crucial in beginning to, like I said, unweave and unravel some of this stuff that's happening. Because if we don't do that, it's all just very meaningless and it's, it's not going to lead to change. Preach, girl. I feel like I'm at church. <laughs> I'm going to repent. It's good stuff. I have another question for you. Yes. Language is really important. And again, I think people's ears are perking up and we want we want to do better. We want we want to listen. That's why you and I are having this conversation so that it fosters that desire. So we hear a lot of different terms. We hear African American, we hear black Americans, we hear black and people of color. What should we know? It really is okay if you use African American. It's okay if you use black. And understanding that people of color doesn't just apply to black people. It applies to basically everything that is not white. So, but in all of that, it's okay to use any of those terms. It just really depends on your intention. If you're saying, oh, you're black. Well, that's a little bit different than me saying, yes, I'm a black woman and I live so and so and so and so. So it kind of just really depends on where you're coming from. But I would like you to know that I did do a little research. I decided to see what do black people like to be called. Now, the interesting thing of it was is that I did not get very many responses from actual black people. What I did get was a white people telling me how they felt about these terms. And so I thought that was very interesting. And so then it, get, it dawns on me that maybe black people don't care. It's just white people are the ones that are kind of getting hung up on this. And so don't get hung up on it. You know, if you say African-American, say it respectfully. If you say black, say it respectfully. If you say people of color, say it respectfully. We are not going to jump down your throats if you call us either one. So helpful. Okay, here's how we're going to wrap this up, my friend. This is between you and me. Man, I'm throwing myself under the bus pretty good today. I like it. <laughs> but I love you. I know, and I love you. Before we conclude, I want you to fill in the blanks. It is helpful when, and you're going to tell me when what, it is not helpful when. So it is helpful when you consider how I will be received or treated when choosing places for us to go. One time you and I went to, I think this was my date that I picked, and we yes. went to Rogers Farms in Orange County. Hello. But it was fun. We went to dinner yes. and there was this great big garden. And this is the first time it pierced my heart to hear you share your true feelings. And we, there was something I think you wanted to purchase. And it was this big property. And you looked at me and you said, hey, would you carry this for me? I don't think I should carry it across this property. And I didn't understand. But you shared with me that this could be dangerous for me. And it was the first time that I, that I really, that hit me. And I, I'm sad to say that, but when you tell me, consider where we go, I think that that, I get it. 
Yeah, I think it's it's just, again, it's one of those things that you don't think about. But we as black yeah. people, we think about this all the time. When yep. we book, you know, when we book a show, when we book a, a hotel room, when we go on a trip, that's always in the back of our minds. Yeah. Do they know I'm black? Are they going to receive me? You know, is this some place that is friendly to black people? And it's it's just something always in the front. Second thing that I would say, it is helpful if you would go to a black movie with me. I'd love it. And when the movie theater is open again. I'd actually like to explain that to you for a minute, because I know it's cute and it seems like a very easy thing. But what I find is when I have white friends, it's very easy for them to take me to see all kinds of movies. But then in order for me to go to see a great movie that has black primary cast members, it's like I usually have to go get my black friends to see that. And if I mention these things to, you know, just in passing the movies, the actors and things like that, you kind of get this deer in the headlight look with my white friends because they have no idea. And somehow for them, while it's okay for me to go to the movies that have all the white people in it, somehow for them, it feels a little awkward to go to a movie with black people. And so that's that, that thing. It's like, you can't really know me unless you actually experience life with me. If that makes sense. Yeah. It is not helpful when. So it is not helpful when you touch my hair. Oh, I love your hair. How does that make you feel? So it's, again, it seems like it's something very small. It really does. And, and, and oftentimes when a black person tells a white person not to touch their hair, they get very offended because, Mm. oh my gosh, I was just, you know, giving you a compliment. But it, you have to remember that we are human and this is our personal space. Mm. And historically, you know, you have to really take it all the way back. Historically, black people were the entertainment or the objects for white people. And if you remember back Jim Crow and sharecropper days and all of that, you would have a white person. It was nothing for a white person to come up to some black children and touch their hair and pat them on the head and talk about how clean they were and how beautiful they were. Oh, my gosh, you have such really like they were animals, Hmm. like somehow they were, you know, they were not human. And so it's kind of that throwback to that. So the idea that you feel like it's okay and you have the right to come and touch my hair because you're curious or it feels good or it's really demeaning. Wow. And and you put you put black people in the in a position like again, I love you. You're my friend. Yeah. And I don't want to hurt your feelings. So then I either stuff it yep. and deal with you touching my hair or I say something and things get kind of awkward because you don't understand. Yeah. Wow. That's good. The deeper meaning in things, right? Sometimes we just make assumptions. All right. You had one more thing. It is not helpful when you assume that I think the same way as you do. Mm. So we talked earlier about how it feels for me to uh, be in a predominantly white church. And so I I think, and I'm just going to use as an example, most of the people in that church are Republicans. And in that, in that thought process, the assumption would be that all Christians, all believers are somehow Republican. And so things are said, sometimes they're not very nice, but things are said and said with the assumption that I automatically think that way. Mm-hmm. And again, it puts me in the position of having to either just kind of stuff it to not make you feel awkward. Or, you know, say some things and cause strife and, and disconnect. So it's, it's, to me, it makes more sense to just 
not assume that I believe that what you believe, but ask me. Mm. You know what I mean? Just yeah. ask me. And, you know, don't just start rattling things off and saying things. Just ask the question. Because sometimes if you just stop and ask the question, you won't say anything that will offend me or hurt my feelings. Mm. We make a lot of assumption, we humans. It's good advice. Thank you. It was difficult to have this conversation, but it was needed. I pray that it creates a good thing in those that hear this. I'm grateful, grateful, grateful for your investment to help me personally unlearn and learn in this process. I'm thankful for your friendship through the years and how much you've truly impacted my life. And we have a lot to think about, Freedom Sisters, all of us, to process. But above all, I want to ask us to continue on in our own journeys to allow Jesus to shape and expand our perspective on biblical justice. Until next time, let's continue to do good, to do more, and to do it together. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Freedom Challenge Online, brought to you by the Freedom Challenge, a ministry of Operation Mobilization USA. For more information about what we do and how you can partner with us, check out our website, thefreedomchallenge.com, and you can follow us on Instagram at the FCUSA.